FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Robert Bust. Robert has an honours degree in biochemistry and a PhD in medicinal chemistry and pharmacology, as well as degrees in chiropractic and naturopathic medicine. After eight years in asthma and cardiovascular drug research at Macquarie Uni, and later as a postdoc research fellow at New York State Health Department, he switched his research focus to the newly emerging, at that time, field of nutritional biochemistry and complementary medicine, and is presently acknowledged as one of the founders of nutritional medicine in Australia. He's also been in high demand as a nutritional educator for pharmacists, doctors, chiropractors, naturopaths and other health professionals the world over. This has included the delivery of professional seminars and consulting services, and he's presently on the Biocidical Scientific Advisory Board and is a formulator of nutritional products and functional foods. Bob was also the nutritional guest on the ABC's Margaret Throsby show for three years, has presented numerous radio and TV nutritional segments, and for the last 11 years has been a Quest nutrition expert on Australia's national shopping channel, TVSN. For the past 22 years, Bob has also been editor-in-chief of the international quarterly journal Clinical Nutrition Review and is best-selling author of three books on contemporary nutrition. And I warmly welcome Bob back to FX Medicine. How are you? Thanks, Andrew. Now, Bob, we're going to be talking today about something quite dear to your heart and has been for many years. And that's this the practicalities about the confusion that we experience with the, the right diet. Um, and we're getting so many confusing messages these days. What I think is interesting is from a population level, you talk about a healthy diet, but that can be very different from a personal perspective. But there's got to be some broad messages here, right? Well, there's so many factors involved with what you call the right diet Mm. for, for each individual. And if we look at their genetics... We look at the environment that they're living in. We look at the population. We look at the country that they're living in. Culture. We look at culture. We look at everything needs to come into this. And yet in recent times, we, we, when I say recent times, in my whole life, we seem to have gone through various fads. I mean, I remember when I was young, I was in the macrobiotic diet and we had virtually no protein. You know, Mm. we had all the right vegetables and everything and, and virtually nothing that we really needed for, you know, building our immune system and enzymes and the rest of it. And and that sort of migrated right through to various, we had the Israeli diet and we had the mono diets of one thing and another. We had juice diets. We had, you know, grape, grape diets. We had um, vegan diets. Uh, recently, we've had the paleo diet where um, obviously there's a lot of meat <clears throat> at other well, times. Well, is there? Well, it, it is changing in the same way that Atkins diet changed oh, yeah. because Atkins started off with a lot of meat and fat and so on, but that's now changing. And I think the paleo diet is changing too. And this is good because it's getting back toward, I think, more of a balance. And can I just say that one of the things that always used to stand out to me when we were talking about what is the right balance and is there a universal diet? Mm. How should we put together various foods? But when you look at, say, the Inuit, they eat whale and seal. Mm. Now, they don't have that's it. fresh fruit and vegetables. and <laughs> Penguin, they, if you're lucky. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and they don't have heart disease. That used to stand out. Then you'd go through to Africa and you'd have the Bantu, and they mainly lived on, um, you know, corn, beans, um, uh, some sort of uh, sweet potato, and they were mainly vegans. They didn't have heart disease. Then you had the Maasai which were also from Africa, and they lived on blood, milk, and meat. 
basically. They didn't have heart disease. And I'm sorry, I'm infamous for saying this, the Hadza tribe. <laughs> <laughs> the Hadza tribe? <laughs> they, um, in Africa as well, yes. the last of the first. They, they're also famed for yes. having something like 30% of their calories from honey. Right. And they have NAFL diabetes. Exactly. That's, so, that sounds like Jeff Leach's stuff. That is. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a very interesting character. Yes. Some good websites. Look, um, so I guess what I'm getting at is how can all these disparate groups worldwide have such fundamentally different diets and yet they're all healthy? Hmm. They don't have heart disease. They don't have cancer. And they have, I can remember Burkett and Trowell talking about um, a foot or two foot long stools. What? Because of the Burkett and Trowell did the original work on so fiber we're not talking in sitting on stools. We're, we're not talking, talking sitting on fecal matter. <laughs> we're Two are. foot long, yeah, and he, they ate a lot of fiber. Obviously, hell of a lot, a hell of a lot of fiber. You know, I guess what I'm really trying to get to is that there are many, many different ways hmm. of having a diet that can lead to wellness and abundant health. Can I put in a point? Hmm. Propose something? Yes. Each of these cultural populations that you've mentioned, disparate in their geography, didn't have mechanisation or convenience. Exactly. And not only they didn't have mechanisation and convenience, but if you extend from that, they didn't have tins, they didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have processed foods. Mm. They didn't actually take the food and try and remove all the fat and they also didn't add excess sugar. And for that reason, they were eating whole foods. Mm. They were eating foods that came straight out of the ground. They were eating fruit straight off the tree. They were getting seals or whales straight out of the ocean. And I think there's a very, very interesting point here. And the point is, if you're not modifying the food by processing it, putting it in tins, overcooking it and doing things to it, you've got to be a long way ahead in trying to find the right diet. So for a long time ago, I said to myself, no matter what the balance is, we must come back to whole foods. They must be seasonal. And if they're seasonal, it means that you're in an ecosystem that is supplying foods that are relevant for your particular metabolism. Now, in the summer, for example, here in Australia, uh, we have heat waves. You wake up in the morning, what do you feel like for breakfast? Do you feel like a hot plate of oats? No. You feel like having some watermelon yeah. or feel like having some fruits and so on. Whereas in the winter when it's freezing cold, if it's minus 10 outside, you're going to have something that's hot. You're going to have an entirely different breakfast than something that you've had, yeah. uh, you know, when it, when it was hot. So yeah. we've got to be Polish, more... Polish breakfast, yeah. stodgy food. And so food. we've got to be more in tune. And also the nutrients that we're getting from mm. something like, you know, fruit, if we're having a fruit breakfast, high in potassium and magnesium, if we're sweating all day, we're actually losing a lot of the things that we might be getting in the local foods. So the other thing is when I was, you know, thinking about what is the sort of diet that we should have, firstly, yes, it must be unrefined, it must be whole, and it must be seasonal for this reason. We're going to get the, the, the right sort of nutrition that we need for our ecosystem. Mm. So if possible, if it's the middle of winter, don't eat pineapples. I mean, even though we can get them from yeah, overseas, yeah. you know, quite apart from the energy I mean, we know that it, it is an enormous amount of energy to get something from South America and bring it over here and eat it for lunch. So if from an ecological perspective, you're actually damaging the planet. Exactly. So they were the first things that, that, that came into, you know, what is the, is the right sort of diet that, you know, we should be on. Just backtracking a little bit, if you're talking from a scientific perspective, what's really nice to have in a study is something like a control group or at least a comparator group. And going back to these cultural... Um, populations with their dietary intake. There was a very famous study called the Pima Indian study. Do you remember that one? Yes, yeah. And they compared the Pima Indians that lived in northern Mexico and southern uh, California. And so the southern California had the mechanization, the processed foods, um, a lot more convenience. Um, I won't, wouldn't say they're highly affluent there, but over the border in Mexico, they were extremely low socioeconomic, hard workers, physical labor, but a very high carbohydrate diet of unprocessed foods. Mm, mm. And if you look at the health effects of that, north of the border, almost 100% diabetes. Mm -hmm. South of the border, NAFL. 
Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it gets back to that that seasonal variation and raw food diet. Now, what I've got to ask you, though, is that's lovely. And I have friends who really concentrate on a raw food or a whole food diet, I should say. But what about you go out? What about the 50th birthday? What about, oh, gee, that champagne's lovely. How do you how do you practically manage this stuff by being, quote, unquote, a little bit bad without having deleterious health effects? Well, you're talking to a flawed human being. So, <laughs> Me too. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, you too. <laughs> I have always said to my patients, we have 21 meals a week. Three of them, go for it. So that means that if you, go, if you do go out to a restaurant, hopefully you know what foods yeah, are really bad for you yeah. and what foods aren't. You can say, can I have the sauce on the side? Can I have my mayonnaise on the side? Uh, can you not put this on? Can we just you know, have them aside? So there, there are ways of getting around it, yeah. and depending on whether you want a high protein, high meat, high fish or whatever it is, or you want lots of vegetables and that. I mean, you can just ask for it if you go to the right sort of restaurants. There's nothing wrong. And also these days, I mean, there, there's some restaurants – springing up that are all organic foods that are um, coming from the local area, uh, coming from the farmers' markets that are around at the moment. Uh, there's, there's an enormous change happening in Australia, I think, in the restaurant scene that means we can now go into a restaurant. We're not eating junk food. Mm. We're not eating mm. a lot of the foods that are absolutely saturated in sugars um, and also the wrong sort of meats that have got you know, fats and things added and sausages and nitrites and all of the things that we're trying to avoid. So I think we now can have the choice. One of the things that I think is very important, uh, and this is another pet of mine, if you actually look at all of the scientific studies that are done that mention carbohydrates, we always mention carbohydrates like we know what we're talking about. Everyone says, we've got to go on a low-carb diet. Right. We've got to go on high-fat, high-protein. It's got to be low-carb. But if you have a look at the clinical studies, often they don't define what a carbohydrate That's right. is. That's right. So a lot of the carbohydrates, you say 30% carbohydrates, 50% carbohydrates. It's not as easy as it, that. Which carb? Exactly. Which fat? Which protein? And that's the thing that I would like to see all scientific studies in the future, defining exactly what we mean by carbs. For example, we now know that the fiber that's associated with carbs is the food for our microbiome. And depending on which particular type of fibrous plant the different types of fiber are going to give rise to different types of microorganisms in our microbiome. Now, a complexity in the microbiome is very much associated with wellness. It's associated with a reduced incidence of cancer, heart disease, all of the autoimmune diseases that we have in the world are going to go down when we get the microbiome right and we get the food for the microbiome right. So with all these studies that say, let's get rid of the carbs and let's get into the, the fat and protein, we now know that the right sort of carbs with the right sort of fiber are contributing to good health. And this is something that has been lacking, I think, in a lot of the scientific studies worldwide over the last 50 or 60 years. Not looking at diversity because that's just a, like there's so much of a pot there. But yeah. um, one microbe in particular, which to me is extremely interesting, and the the researcher that sticks out from this is Clara Belzer, B-E-L-Z-E-R, initial C. Um and the microorganism that she's been studying with regards to hunger is Acomantia municifilia. Mun yeah, I, yeah. I always stumble on that. No, no. Um, municifilia. Mucinophilia. It's mucinophilia. Mucinophilia. It's and, mucin yeah. and liking. Yeah, forgive no. me. No, that's um, right. So Acomantia mucinophilia. And um, what I'd like to see is which types of foods helped to um, – bloom this organism. There, there, there are others, I know. And it's, uh, I, I know it's very simplistic to say that one is the hero. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't subscribe to that. But it certainly does seem to be, let's say, a marker mm -hmm. that we could perhaps look, use as a waypoint. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to see some further works looking at which types of foods, which mm -hmm. types of fibres helped to um, 
grow this organism in, in human guts. Mm. Well, it's interesting you should say that because the last two conferences I went to, one in Budapest and just a couple of months ago in Vancouver, yep. guess what the organism was that they were talking about oh, that really? was so important. Yeah. Th that uh, acomancia is really important. And what they were talking about is, once again, having the right food. So the prebiotics that we haven't heard a heck of a lot about over the last, you know, 10, it's 20 of, years. sort of waned. It has. <laughs> but but really, you know, if we, was scared of if we eat fibrous foods like onions, yeah. leeks, garlic, um, asparagus, and broccoli, uh, I mean, we can go through spinach, um, cauliflower, all of the things that we know have a fibrous mm nature to it, which are carbs. Hmm. We're not talking about flour that's no. been refined. No, We're not right. talking about sugar that's been added. Hmm. We're talking about carbs. So when you see the big clinical studies that are talking about carbs, are they talking about these foods? Hmm. I don't think so. Yeah. I think we're talking about toast for breakfast and perhaps white toast. And I think we're talking about some sort of biscuits and cakes that they're allowed to have. We're talking about, you know, all sorts of things that have been refined carbs. Mm. And I think there's an entire difference in the outcome of these studies if we're using the sort of highly fibrous seasonal whole vegetables compared to some of the carbs that they're obviously using in these studies. So obviously the, the issue here is what we define as a certain food, i.e., What's bred now versus what's bred 100 years ago? Exactly. What's milk now versus even 20 years ago? Mm. Um, you know, you can go into any food stuff. Jam, anything that's in a packet now mm. is different from what it was 20 years ago. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we've made big headway. Big. If you go into the supermarket now, you'll see that you've got the A1 and A2 milk, yeah. which is the normal yeah. milk. And yet my and, dad, who's an old farmer from England, yeah. used to say, oh, no, you always have the Jersey cat. Yeah, you know, exactly. Speaking in a Somersetian accent. But anyway. Yeah. Um, but, but just to get onto that, I mean, the A1 milk is entirely different to the A2 milk. Mm. And now I notice that some of the supermarkets, some of the home brands are saying contains A1. Yeah. Of course it contains A1. Every cow contains some. A1, except for the Boz Indicus, which is a special strain of cow, and I think you're mainly Jersey, as you pointed out, and the A2 milk actually does not have casomorphine. And a lot of these peptides have been responsible, perhaps, or contributing toward diabetes and ischemic heart disease. And that's why a lot of people are now drinking A2 milk. Remember when it first came out, they were on the shelves, reaching the expiry date, came from New Zealand, I think, the original A2 corporation. But the whole thing left... It, it went down. There was no sales at all simply because nobody knew what it was. I remember giving lectures around Australia on A2. Hmm. Now you can buy it in just about any supermarket oh, in Australia. Yeah, so getting back to what you said, yes, there's been a fundamental radical change in the way supermarkets are now keeping up with science. You, before you couldn't buy A2 milk, now you can. And the same happens with breads. You mentioned breads. Can you remember when you were a kid? You'd walk down the aisles of a supermarket, it was all white bread. And in fact, they were spraying with fresh bread spray. Oh, really? Yeah. They, they had a spray that smelt like fresh bread. Oh, so you kidding. walk along and you go, mmm, I'll have some of that. Thank yeah. you. It was all white bread, had no fibre or anything. Yeah. Only now you can buy an enormous variety of different high fibre breads that's got quinoa, it's got spelt, it's got all the different seeds and grains. And it's just quite amazing what's happening. But Alessio Fasano painted this picture for me and, and it was it really rang true. And that is that the pressure of providing for the masses is making us ferment even the good breads mm. in a far quicker time. So the yeasts have to work with, um, I think they rise it in two hours now, mm. whereas before it used to be six, eight hours. Right, yeah. So 20, 30 years ago, it took eight hours, 12 hours to make a loaf of bread. Now it's making, taking two. Yeah. And what that does is decrease the time that the yeasts have to act on the proteins exactly. and wheats. Um, and so this is where potentially this, uh, use the word allergenic, let's say sensitivity to wheat, is um, is increasing. It may not be the wheat per se. It may be, again, how we're stuffing up the manufacture of food to provide for everybody who wants that food. Yeah. We're, you know, tomatoes are tasteless. Try and find a strawberry that has that full flavour. Mm. You know, it's. It, I think we've got to get back to, and I'm not saying have a farm, mm. but I think part of this issue, and it got, it's got to do with immunological tolerance, mm. is at least at least have some part of your garden, part of your porch, if if you live in a unit that has herbs, mm. veggies, some veggies.
And I think you, you put your finger on it when it comes to fermentation too. If you come into our household, everything's fermenting. I mean, the whole kitchen is bubbling. You'd, you'd think that well, witches were running it, you know, because we, we love ferment. Sandor Katz is the yeah. guy that came out here a little while back into Australia. He came to Sydney and he was talking about fermentation and how since we've had tins and refrigerators and things, we've stopped fermenting. Mm. But fermentation is where all these microorganisms are just so important. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're getting back to Fasano's work, I mean, really, it's a combination of maybe the gliadin, which is one of the components of gluten, together with the microbiome. I mean, you've got to have the right microbiome. So if you've got fermented foods that's coming from all the local produce and you're fermenting it through the winter rather mm. than, I mean, I'm not saying we don't use refrigerators, but we can still ferment things. That way we're getting the biodiversity or the, the diversity of the microbiome, which is already together if you're not having gluten and you ha have, you're not having gliadin, the gliadin, as we know now, is, is very, um, it, it's a bad thing for most people, but some people handle it better than others. Yeah. And it depends on your um, genetic makeup, genetic makeup mm -hmm. as, as to w which way it goes. But the combination of having the right sort of um, uh, probiotics and the right sort of fiber to feed the uh, microorganisms in your bowel and keeping certain things out like gluten, you're going to have an entire different bowel. That lower bowel is going to be acidic. Mm. And if you have an acidic bowel, you're producing acetate, propionate, butyrate. And that, that way, the leaky gut is not going to happen. And unfortunately, by not doing that, by having gliadin and by having the dysbiosis, which is the wrong sort of bugs in the gut, we are overexpressing zolulin. And with an overexpression of zolulin, of course, we open up the floodgates and these large macromolecules get in, trigger the immune system. And of course, this is where Fasano has done such amazing mm. work because the whole autoimmunity is now opened up. We now understand a lot about diabetes type 1. We understand rheumatoid arthritis. We understand MS, Sjogren's. I mean, you can just go on and on because we now have the means, I think, at our hand to actually control the dietary intake, uh, the, the food for the microbiome and the type of bugs that we're eating. We mentioned the, the fermentation. All of these things, I think, should be um, considered when we're considering what sort of food, what sort of diet we should be having, no matter where we are in the world, uh, we should be considering these things because of some of this new research, which we can now put into action. Barring the Inuit, which really do not have the facility to grow green foods on that bare frozen landscape, mm. um, every other culture on earth, at least the ones that I know, have a base in vegetables. Yep. Indeed, if you wanted to talk about the picture child of health for a healthy diet, it would have to be the proper, and I use that in bold, the proper Mediterranean diet, which mm. does not include a lot of pasta. No. Um, but it includes- All meat. All meat. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And But it, it does include a basis of a wide variety of vegetables. But importantly, this social interaction, a reducing of stress hormones, a time to chew, uh, you mm -hmm. know, allowing your body time to chew and digest and and imbibe and intake these um, foods and drinks to nourish our body. So I guess where do you go with something like a Mediterranean diet for a population? You know, it's said that the Mediterranean diet is really the healthy diet that we should be mm. adhering to. But, you know, then we've got these things about, well, okay, how do you answer the had to them? Mm -hmm. how, how do you answer these well, other? You know what I do? I mean, having been in practice for 30 years, one of the first things I ask my patient is, what sort of diet do you have? I mean, if I was to say to you, look, you can have a steak with some eggs and some bacon, or you can have some fruit salad, or yeah. you can have a salad. What do you like What, what to do eat? you like? Yeah. It, it, just try and find out. Mm. I mean, we don't have their genome. We haven't got it in front of us. But by what they tell you, I mean, some people would not think of having anything that's highly fatty and for breakfast, like bacon and eggs and, and some chops or something like that. And other people, they, they couldn't start the day without it. So, I mean, all these things, I think, are really important to get some grasp of each individual and what they're likely to have. So when it comes to the Mediterranean diet, we can mix and match because if you, if you have a look at the Mediterranean diet, depending on where in the Mediterranean, depends on the balance. Every diet, whether it's in Crete 
or it's in France or Spain or wherever it is, is different, entirely different, even though it's a Mediterranean diet. I was looking at a show the other night where they were telling us how fantastic chickpeas were, you know, in Crete, and they were cooking them up with uh, capsicum and tomatoes that were stuffed, you know, and, and they were getting grape leaves and they were, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's an entire different possible diet, but they all have one thing in common, and that is, like you said, they're relaxed, they often have a siesta, uh, they often have um, a glass of, of wine with their meal. In, in Crete, they have it almost with every meal. But so, they, also, they also do things like, um, I was looking, reading this book called The Blue Zones. A great read, by the way. Mm. Anybody who's interested in longevity should read that book, The Blue Zones. I can't remember the author. Um, but what they're talking about in Crete, they move. Mm. They don't exercise. No. But they move naturally. They just... I'm doing this. I'm, doing things, I, I yeah. might be sitting down, you know, um, shelling the peas, taking the ends off the peas mm. um, or beans, and then I'll get up and do a thing. And then I'll sit down and do this, but then I'll get up and do that. Right. I'll do some cleaning. I'll do that. They're always moving regularly every 20 minutes. Mm. And that influences the microbiome we now find. Mm. So there's this whole interaction of it's not just what we eat. It's what we do. Yes. It's what we think. It's what we, how we eat, how fast we eat. Yes, and to what extent does the siesta? How have we an rest. Influence? Thank you. you. Know, resting. Yeah. I mean, all very important. I, no, I, I agree with it, and I think that that's why when people say we should all do ten thousand steps a day. Now, in a city like Sydney, for example, where we are, it's very difficult. You know, if you're working hard to try and do the movement that you're talking about. But we can still every, I mean, maybe we put our alarm on every hour to get up and move around. Mm. But the idea of sitting there for four or five hours, you know, and just Craziness. getting into it, you know, soldier on. Craziness. No, don't, don't do it. That's why we should get up and have a coffee, Bob. Exactly. And, <laughs> and incidentally, 10,000 steps is four kilometres. Yeah. So to walk four kilometres a day is not that difficult. And I mean, I've, I've tried it on myself. I mean, you don't have to just do the full four kilometres all at once. But you can move around, and if you can, you know, do some other activity. And I think it's that's good. I think that's Im- critical. Is it's not just walking. Walking is this sort of one plane, two plane mm. movement. Whereas there's some very interesting research coming out now with regards to cancer, with regards, or even um, sarco- uh, sarcopenia. Mm. And better than doing resistance exercise was something like dancing mm, mm. because you're moving joints and body parts throughout full ranges of movements, yeah. certainly when I dance. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's what's behind yoga too. I mean, all the different postures exactly. that you put into. I mean, we, what we're doing is toning every muscle group yeah. in the body. So, yeah. I mean, anyone that is into Tai Chi or yoga, you know, please keep it up. Bending. Yes. I think this is one of these key things that we start to lose, bending. Mm. Um, flexing different parts of the body, not exactly. just not just the knees. They say use it or you lose it. That's, yeah, that's pretty right. true. You know? So I've got to ask, what about these historically, dare I say the word healthy, they're certainly historical, they're certainly cultural. What about a German diet? You had a, a more, you know, a colder environment, colder mm. winters mm-hmm. certainly, uh, more milder summers, and yet they used to use things which today even – you know, the World Health Organization has, has lambasted them as a class one carcinogen, and that is these preserved meats. Yeah, but now, I mean, what Germans they're preserving, the right. entirely different preservatives that are in the meats that we do compared to what traditionally they used to use. Now, this is interesting to me mm. because, again, it's how we're stuffing up a food. Exactly. Whereas I remember... Um, Looking back and, you know, we'd like to think about E. coli, Nissel 1917, a fantastic probiotic, some nice research on it. Where did we get it? Oh, we got it from a human. We got it from a World War I soldier who survived a dysentery outbreak. No, hang on, guys. That's a little bit arrogant. We actually can get it from pigs. <laughs> and what do German mm. soldiers eat a lot of? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Sausage. So I just think we, yeah. we'd, we've got to stop this ownership of these organisms. Mm. Um, but I just think it was very interesting that it came from the food. Mm. You know? But don't you think it's important also to have a look at ethnic diets that, yes. have, that have gone back? We have clinical trials yeah. and they're you know well-controlled, randomised controlled clinical trials. And they're good. I like randomised controlled clinical trials. I like looking at them. Mm. But you have a group of people that have lived in an ecosystem for 5,000 years and they haven't moved around much. Firstly, their genome has 
been accustomed to the sort of foods that are there. And talking about epigenetics, all of the things that they're eating on a daily basis defines the expression of those genes mm. that's appropriate for that particular group of people in that particular place. Yes. So I love ethnic diets. And if you can look back and you can see, and the person, particularly if they're living in the same country, that's the way to go. And that means much more to me than every clinical trial in the world where they're pulling everything to pieces and trying to find out what's going on. The problem genomically speaking, is we have now moved around the globe intermarrying. We have different races coming together, which is heterogeneity of the gene pool, which is good, making us more intelligent, making us more attractive and so on. But when it comes to actually trying to define what the right sort of diet is, whereas we knew before, if we went back to 3,000 years, we don't really know now what the genes are that no. are responding to what mm. in our environment. And that's where a lot of the confusion. So not only are we preserving foods, we're modifying foods, and we have, oh, we better get rid of the uh, fat in our foods. So what do we do? We have high sugar mm. foods. Mm. So all the low-fat foods in the supermarket that you get out there are packed says with sugar. no cholesterol. Exactly, yeah. no cholesterol, yeah. but it's now got sugar. And, I mean, this has brought us into an entirely different realm because we've talked before on lipoproteins and how that they are now being modified by the foods we're eating. So the fats and the sugars that we're eating on a daily basis in the modern Western diet are changing the lipoproteins. Now, a good way of looking at this is LDL is a risk factor for, um, for heart disease. Total LDL. Total LDL. I like to look at LDL as a rich plum on a tree versus a prune. Now, they're both LDL, right? The whole plum and the prune. The shrunken little prune is equivalent to small, dense LDL. This is the risk factor. Mm. The lovely, fluffy, big plum is the uh, good LDL. This is not such a risk factor. This is okay. Now, what happens is when that plum is associated with a high sugar level that we've all had in our diets for I don't know how many years, together with some of the highly oxidizable vegetable oils, seed oils, for example, that oxidize really readily, you've got the ApoB, which is around the LDL, which is actually binding it and is able to uh, recognize the actual um, uh, cells in, in, the, in the blood vessel and it, it takes the fats in. That is oxidized. And it's usually the lysine residues and the sugar glycates it. Now, as we have HbA1c, which is a good indication of your sugar level over a long period, say three months, mm -hmm. we also glycate our LDL. And when we glycate the LDL and the fats are also oxidizing, we end up with the prune. Now, that prune... Now, when you go and get your, when you get your pathology tests, unless you know whether your LDLs are prunes or plums... Mm. You know nothing, absolutely and, and, nothing. And this is the fight. This would be interesting for me to talk to a really, really, really old GP, past mm. retirement age, yep. when they didn't have LDL-HDL tricks, mm. they had total cholesterol, that's it. Mm. And then they found, oh, no, there's subfractions. Mm. But now there's this huge resistance to look at the subfractions of the subfractions. Yeah. And I go, guys, come on. Yeah. You can see. You know there's this functional difference. Mm. There's a study that sort of looked at this regression analysis, mm. and they basically uh, negated the effect of the small dense LDLs, which is that it's to me it's just like a way of regression upon regression upon regression until you end up with nothing. Mm. Um uh, to me, it's a trollop of a study. It's like, come on, guys, you know there's a difference there. You know what the pathology is. You know that it's oxidized LDL that migrates uh, under the mm. tunica intima of the artery. Mm. Why are you not grasping this? I don't get this. But, you know, the interesting thing too is w when we say what can we do about it, now we've just defined two areas that people listening to this program can do something about. Firstly, get rid of the seed oils. The polyunsaturated oils we do not need a lot of. We can get it in avocados. We can get it in seeds, yep. nuts beans. particularly, yep. beans. We've got a lot of – I mean, if you eat corn on the cob, you're getting corn oil, but it's in it's corn on the cob. So forget this idea we need. the message is we should be eating the plants. We should be eating the whole plants, and it's the same with food, uh, fruit. If you want to get some sugar, eat a whole piece of fruit. You're not getting anything like the 16 teaspoons of sugar in 600 mils of, of a soda. So what we can do is, yes, get rid of the sugar – Eat whole foods, this is what we've been saying, and you're going to immediately get your LDLs going toward plums rather than prunes. Yeah. Now, this is important, but, you know, one of the things with oxidation, 
is antioxidants, anti-inflammatory agents that naturally exist in fresh fruit and vegetables. Now, if you have a look at LDL that's healthy, and I'm talking about the plum, mm -hmm. not the prune, mm. the plum has tocotrienols, tocopherols, it has coenzyme Q10, it has beta-carotene, yeah. ubiquinol. Mm. These are all antioxidants, anti-inflammatory agents. They protect those fats that are in the LDL from oxidation. So we need to have some whole fruits, some whole vegetables, seasonal, in our diet, I believe, even if we have a high meat, high fat diet, sure, have a high meat, high fat diet, but make sure we've also got the highly fibrous foods that we mentioned for the microbiome. And we've also got foods that are rich, that are highly colored, for example, yeah, the purple and the red and the yellow. These are all rich in the carotenoids uh, and the polyphenolics and, the, and some of the things that we're talking about that is going to protect the LDL, i.e. the plums, and stop the plums going into prunes. Because mm. it's the prunes, these little, tiny, small, dense LDLs that are taken up preferentially, what am I, not professionally, <laughs> preferentially, <laughs> preferentially <laughs> sorry, <laughs> into the endothelium. And we're going to then take them up into macrophages to form foam cells. And this, of course, is the beginning of atherosclerotic mm. plaque and so on. So let's get rid of the sugar. Let's get rid of the, the uh, polyunsaturated oils. And let's take lots of these anti-inflammatory agents and antioxidants then we've got a chance of changing the LDL fractions that you mentioned. It's about seven of the LDL fractions. More of the LDL 1 and 2, which we'll find in the plum, and less of the LDL 3 to 7, which are the small, dense LDLs, which have been modified. This is the modified LDL taken up by scavenger receptors that is taken into the foam cells. So this is something that we can do. We can do this right today. Even though you haven't had any pathology tests, you can actually change the diet in this respect and you can modify no matter what your preference is for fats and proteins and carbs. Just make sure the carbs are whole carbs, seasonal, high fiber, and the 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 hopefully that the meat that you're eating is largely fish. Like the Mediterranean diet, they have a minimum of two or three meals of fish a week. And I think the fish has got the omega-3 oils in Absolutely. and so on. For any of our listeners that want to catch up on the the uselessness of the benefits of seed oils in the diet, um, look at the Sydney Heart Diet Study. I think that's right. Or Sydney Diet Heart Study. Um, that was the one that only recently, I think it was one or two years ago, and it basically called into question this dietary advice uh, dietary guidelines, which we've been given for, what, two, two and a half decades, mm. which has not helped us with heart disease at all. Mm. It's other fats that we should be concentrating well, on. Well, even the latest US um, dietary, dietary guidelines. guidelines. That's where I was going next. Well, they're saying, you know, we, we need to get our fat down to 10% and our sugar down to 10%. I don't, I don't believe that that's right. I believe we need to control the type of fat that we're taking in. Like we said, avocados and seeds and nuts and grains and get them. And even if we're having fat from meat, a lot of people are not aware of the fact that the saturated fat, which we think is the stuff around chops and, and bacon and, and it's the intramuscular marbling in a steak, this is not saturated fat. This is 48% oleic acid, mm. which is what we have in olive oil. Particularly which we know in, is well okay. in grass-fed meat. Yes, yeah. it definitely changes in It changes if you're having grain-fed. So go for the grass-fed beef and you're going to get the right sort of oil. Uh, and this is really important because if we've got the right sort of oils, we can take that up a little bit more. And the same with the, with the sugars at 10%. I think we should be aiming at trying to get the sweet tooth, and I've got a sweet tooth, yeah. I know all about it, yeah. to try and get away from that. Because if we can just eat the whole fruit, like for example, berries are particularly good. Mm. And we're going for low glycemic um, index, we're going for low glycemic load, but we're still getting the sweetness. When you have a carrot and you haven't been eating a lot of sugar, the carrot is sweet. Yeah. When you're having pumpkin or squash, you've got a, a, a low glycemic load, but mm. you've got this sweetness. So we've got to move ourselves away. So it's all very well saying, yeah, we'll have lots of stevia and erythritol and lots of xylitol. They are good. They are good sugar alternatives. But I think ultimately, if we can just train ourselves not to go into the sweet area, 
then what I've just said, particularly for lipoproteins, and, and, and that actually can extend through to cancer and a whole lot of different mm. disorders, we are doing ourselves a great favour as far as wellness goes. It was a very powerful movie, the, the, the film called That Sugar Film. Yes, yes. Extremely powerful. Mm. But one of the, the interesting points that I got from the movie was the incredible research that went into that guy who developed the bliss point. We are basically programmed to like sweetness. Yeah. And he found, and it was much more than what I thought it would be. Um, you know, so uh, forgive my memory, but let's take it for this uh, analogy. Instead of being one teaspoon of sugar in a cup of coffee, it was more like three two teaspoons mm. of sugar in a cup of coffee. And the researchers found that this was evident in infants. Right. So they're pro we humans are programmed call it a survival thing, if you like, from when we were primates, primates hunting for food in the treetops. or um, And it was incredibly sweet food to survive on. But that's primed. What we've fallen into, though, is feeding that to us, to ourselves every single day. Mm. Well, there's without too much. any outlet, without any exercise, without any burning exactly. off of that energy. And there's too much sugar around. And there's too much fat around that mm. of the wrong kind. But, I mean, if we could just go through the supermarkets and get rid of all of the, the oils. I mean, in Crete, they eat olives. Mm. I mean, olives, olives. and, and, and olive oil, oil. And, and you haven't got the same problem. So the Mediterranean diet is full of olives and olives. Oil. It's mm. not full of safflower, sunflower, corn, soybean oil. And that, that's the stuff that can oxidize very easily. It's about 60% of alpha, sorry, not alpha, of, of cis-linoleic acid. And that stuff oxidizes. It forms linoleic acid hydroperoxide. And it is a risk factor. And it wasn't around before the Second World War. It's only after the Second World War we've started to use those oils in the diet. And that was an economic thing, it wasn't was it? It was an economic thing. US, it was US Department of Agriculture. So, and they didn't do any studies on that. So it's really interesting to think we should perhaps go back. And if you want intramuscular marbling on your piece of meat, if you're into the paleo diet, eat the right sort of vegetables, have intramuscular marbling. It's not going to hurt you because... You've got the stearic acid, you've got palmitic acid, you've got oleic acid. Now, palmitic acid might be in there. I'm not sure. What is it, 15 16%? But when do we ever eat just pure palmitic acid? No, we right. don't do that. And no. a lot of the studies that have been carried Crazy. out have been carried out on one single fatty acid that's taken away from its cousins and its brothers that are in the fat we are eating in our diet. This is a fundamental problem when it comes to clinical research. We do not give someone palmitic acid. We give them whatever the, the food is that they're going to normally eat. Yeah, that's right. So I've got to ask then, somebody's already in that sh high sugar, bad fat diet. How do you take patients with this slow, um, call it an evolution, um, of getting back to what we should be eating when they've got these extremely powerful mm. satiety and hunger signals yeah. um, governing their lifestyle? How, what, what? What tips can you give our listeners with getting them back onto the right track? Well, one of the, one of the ways that I was doing it was using the 5-2 diet mm. because what happens is if you actually limit, this is intermittent fasting, yes. and two days a week on, say, Monday and Thursday, if you're a man, you just have 600 calories. If you're a woman, you have 500 calories. And you knock down the amount of food that you're eating on those days to the five or 600 calories, and over the week, you've knocked the total calorie load down, but you haven't signaled your body that, hang on, we're going into a drought. We better hang on to our fat tissue. Hmm. So what happens is firstly, um, insulin-derived growth factor goes down. Maybe it's 28 and it comes down to 15 and so on. So you are going to lose body fat and you are going to go into the direction of weight loss. So there's such obesity uh, in, in, the, hmm. in the world at the moment. Absolutely. This is one way of getting your, a different way of, of controlling the diet. Now, instead of just eating anything you want, which is in the 5-2 diet, I wouldn't do that. I would actually eat good food that we've been talking about on this program. So on the five days that you're eating anything and as much as you want, eat good foods. But the other day, still cut the calories down because we do know most people are addicted to something and particularly foods. You're addicted to sugar. You're addicted to fat. Uh, you can be addicted to bread. You can be addicted mm. to something. And mm. I think people can relate to that. So to get out of that addictive, firstly, you've got to want to do these changes. You've got to want to perhaps lose weight around the middle. 
And then by cutting the calories down, you change the way in which some of these hormones like ghrelin and leptin are acting. So ghrelin is making you hungry all the time. Now, if the ghrelin level drops and you're not as hungry, this is good. Mm. So as you're changing the hormone levels and on this particular diet, you will have your blood sugar come down. You will have your triglycerides come down. You will have a lot of the parameters that you want to start lowering. And this means that your natural homeostatic mechanisms are readjusting. So to answer your question, we need to slowly get there, but we will see a change. But you can't change over life be- overnight because I really believe this is an addiction. I think people yep. have food addictions. And yep. this has come out recently in a lot of papers and at conferences I've been to. People are addicted. I mean, as you know, I mean, you can say, cut sugar out of your diet. How many people can do that? Mm-hmm. How many people can cold turkey cut the sugar out of their diet? I just don't think there's many that can do it. I remember, forgive me, I think it was Rosemary Stanton um, talking about that these these addictions, if you like, these bad habits can last up to a year, mm. um, that it really does take quite a long time to cement a new habit into place. What What interested me was somebody... It was two journalists, TV journalists, were talking about um, the rationale for the 5-2 diet. And what the guy had been doing the 5-2 diet. The female journalist was asking him about it. And he said, you know what? I just decided to do it. And I knew what I was doing. I was still, I still felt hungry, but not starving. Mm. And I just got past it. I just went, I'm doing it. Yeah. So I just felt hungry for the day, knowing that I wouldn't tomorrow. Mm. So that's willpower. Yes, it is. What interested me was when you look at, we spoke at Jeff Leach, we spoke, Mm. I can't forget this guy. But one of the most important points I took out of his thing was that he was never totally full. Mm. When he lived for the Hadza tribe for a year, Mm. not at any stage was he totally full. There was always that slight, not not starvation, Mm -hmm. but just like, oh, I could do with a little bit more. Yes. And that in itself is a powerful mechanism for, call it healing, um, for normalization of hunger hormones, of blood sugar, mm-hmm. of receptors, or, you know, uh, of how we maintain a homeostatic mechanism with regards to our diet. And that's exactly right. If you can cut up from the table feeling like you could just probably eat a little bit more, just, yeah. you know that your hormones are starting to do the right thing. And it, it, it's it, you've just got to get used to that feeling of just being slightly not stuffed. Yeah, but it's the <laughs> willpower yeah. to say that, that exactly to right. choose that. But keeping that in mind, remember I said your blood parameters are going to change. Yeah. And as they change in the right direction, particularly if you're eating foods with low glycemic index and you're, you're eating on the right fats, you're eating the right oils and so on, All of that is going to mean that your cells are now going to be contented. Now, the mitochondria, when they're overloaded, it doesn't matter what you overload them with. It could be any of the macronutrients. It can be protein, carbohydrates, or fat. When the mitochondria is overloaded, like putting two loads of washing in a washing machine, you know, you don't get them clean. What happens is we get reactive oxygen species. We get free electrons bizzing off. And all of that is going to create havoc. It's going to create havoc. And that's where we've got to cut the amount that we're eating down. Because if if you start thinking in your mind, how am I going to cut down what I'm eating? And then think all the little powerhouses in our cell that are generating energy are releasing reactive oxygen species, free radicals and electrons that are damaging our body. They are oxidizing macromolecules. They are causing the problem we talked about with the lipoproteins. They are cross-linking because the advanced glycation end products are cross-linking collagen in in the blood vessels. All of these things happen when we're overeating. Now, if we can stop the overeating with the 5-2 diet, that is, I think, the best handle on it. If you say to a patient, no, no, you're eating too much, you've got to cut down, it doesn't work. Yeah. From my experience, it yeah. doesn't. Yeah. But they will go You're eating on the too five. much Domino's, eat less Domino's. <laughs> but, if, but the 5-2 does work. And you've just, that's why I've been using that to try and change So people's. what about the 5-2 Mediterranean? Well, because I mean, five-two yes. diet's kind of like similar to the Israeli diet, isn't it? A sort of starve famine. What do you call it? Well, Feast famine. Well, the main thing is, like you said, if you're cutting your calories down to five or six hundred calories, mm. you know the next day you're going to be eating again. Yeah, and and that is the willpower that you talked about. Yeah. 
makes it so much easier if you know, well, tomorrow I'm going to be okay, and that will get you through the day. But if you're saying, oh, for a couple of weeks I'm just going to go on, you know, um, two-thirds of what I normally eat, it, it won't work because people are addicted to certain things. Can I ask you in a future podcast if we go into these hunger signals and, mm. and really explore the biochemistry of that? Um because maybe we might have some answers for the. I mean, in some people, you know, the super obese and the morbidly obese, that these people have extremely powerful hunger signals, and they can fit a loaf of bread into an, a, a, an extended stomach. I mean, they, their stomach can hang down to their left iliac fossa. Mm. It is bloated. It, it is um, expanded, mm. stretched. So there's that physical stretch receptor um, signal as well, rather than just the biochemistry. Mm. Would you mind if we explore that in another podcast? No. Well, I mean, a, a lot of the, the things that you're talking about, I mean, I, I can remember I've had patients that would eat a kilo of cheese a day or yeah. that would eat a whole loaf of bread. And they have, a, a, we call it allergic reactions, but now what we know about the lower bowel and zolulin, I mean, obviously there was something going on with the microbiome. There's something going on with, in the case of bread, it, it was, probably was gluten or gliadin. Um, and, and some of these things that they're addicted to, are causing a sort of stress response. Yeah. And they're releasing adrenaline and they're releasing endorphins and things because with stress, a lot of people crave a certain stress response, particularly adrenaline, because adrenaline mobilizes fatty acids, mobilizes sugar, gives you a real buzz. So that real buzz is why people are gravitating towards certain foods and overeating them, even though they're bad for them, mm. causing a problem. They just must have a little bit more of, of this or that food. Another topic that I'll ask you to delve into is the resistant um, weight management or weight gain, if you like, when people plateau and they can't get over it and mm. what part inflammation plays and managing inflammation yeah. how you manage that inflammation from various parts, yeah. whether it be the gut or just giving some fish oil, some turmeric, whatever. Um, would you be happy to do that in another podcast? Yeah. I mean, talking about um, inflammation, I mean, as you know, that the, the visceral mass around the middle when you're overweight is a highly inflamed mass full of macrophages and so on. And um, the polyunsaturated oils, when we eat polyunsaturated oils, Yes, they do oxidize, but also when they're taken into the adipocyte, the mitochondria are not going to allow those to be metabolized the same way as saturated fats. So the insulin signaling still occurs and it goes in. So we end up with this calories going into the adipose tissue and accumulating there. So we're hungry. So we're hungry while we accumulate polyunsaturated oils like safflower oil, corn yeah. oil, yeah. and also the glucose is going into it. So this is a bad situation. Energy that you can't use. Yeah, so we've, we've got to change that by changing composition of our Bob, diet. I've always loved the, the, how you can tie in the biochemistry with the patient in front of you. And, and it, it's always well, well, I don't mention biochemistry with <laughs> the patient, I can tell you. No, but, but, but you do. I mean, I've learned from you yeah. for so long. And you've always done that. You've always made me question things that I thought was right and changed and looked into why things were happening. But today, thank you for taking us into why these dietary choices are so bad for us and indeed what we can do to change them in, in ourselves as well as our patients. So I thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. It's a pleasure. And the best diet is an individual diet. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.